Welcome to UnUninformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Each week, UnUninformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel so dumb around your smart friends. This week, we're talking about evolution and Christianity. Can they coexist? To answer this question, we're hearing from Dr. Steve Peck, who teaches evolution at a church university, and he talks about how he holds religion and evolution close to his heart. I attended an event in Salt Lake City called Faith Again. This is a monthly gathering where people of faith talk about issues that people of faith tend to have. Uh, Being in Salt Lake, most of these participants are connected to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, the Mormons. Some attending the Faith Again event are hardcore Mormons. Others are struggling to stay in the church. And some have straight up left the church. But the crew also has uh, a bunch of people from other faiths and uh, even some atheists. So what they all have in common is the desire to discuss hard questions about faith. And this time, the topic was evolution. And before I jump in, if you live near Salt Lake City and want to check this out, just go to faithagain.org. This was my first time going, and the night was full of interesting conversations with interesting people. Like I said, the guest for this Faith Again event was Dr. Steve Peck. He is an associate professor in BYU's biology department. He's also an active Mormon. And since BYU is also funded by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, some people may think there's a conflict here. Here's Steve Peck. Let me give you a little little, uh, uh, history of me. I'm I'm a biology professor at BYU, uh, which, according to my high priest group, means that evolution is true. Because one of them once said in class, he didn't know who I was, said, if evolution were true, they'd teach it at BYU. (laughs) I think that's right. I think that's right. Now, the guy who made that comment in Steve's church class does not have that unique of an opinion among Mormons or even among people among diverse Christian faiths. This conflict with evolution and Christianity mostly stems from a verse in the Bible that says, quote, For behold, thus saith the Lord, the earth upon which thou standeth upon is only 6,000 years old. I'm just kidding. I, I, I totally pulled that out of nowhere. I, I totally made that up. Uh, oh, suck. In the olden days, I probably would have been killed for blasphemy for even misquoting the Bible like that. Anyway, but but, but things like holding on to 6,000 years as a figure that apparently is extrapolated from biblical history um, are, are one of the grounds for Christians being skeptical of evolution ever since Darwin made his novel discovery. And another legitimate concern with uh, Christian theology and evolution is this. Adam and Eve are believed to be the first parents of humankind as opposed to apes or pond scum being the first parents of humankind. There's also the belief that there was no death before Adam and Eve experienced what Christians call the fall of Adam. But Steve Peck does not have such a rigid view of it. He, he believes in a religion where we can have the two Ps, 
prayer, and pterodactyls. Yeah, actually, I'll admit it. I, I didn't know that pterodactyls started with P. So I just thought to throw that in. Anyway, okay, here, let me, let me give you the real quote. Um, this is a quote by Steve Peck. He said, quote, I want a theology that allows both prayer and pterodactyls, a faith that is dynamic and readjusts to the ever-changing findings of science. A science that does not look askance when I experience something deeper and bigger than the biological processes that keep my material body ticking and talking. Close quote. Okay, that's cool. But, But before we dig deeper into Steve's talk at the Faith Again event, let me weigh in on my personal experience with both faith and evolution. So I'm a guy who goes to church every week, and I'm, I'm totally committed to religion. I'm a believer. I really feel like there is an unseen spiritual realm. Now, on the other hand, I'm a hardcore fan of science. I'm a mechanical engineer. I, I've wanted to be a scientist or astronaut or inventor probably since I was five. And to be honest, I've, I've definitely had my doubts about evolution in the past. Uh, but, but these doubts weren't really firmly held because cause first... The only time I had formally been taught about uh, ev- evolution was in my bi- biology 1010 class. And second, I was a little more concerned about stuff like, you know, how electric motors worked and gears and stuff like that than I was about biology. So I didn't really have a personal connection to evolution growing up. And, and it didn't seem very observable or, or relatable until I went caving in the Bloomington Cave near my hometown in St. George, Utah. So I've spelunked this cave at least a dozen times. And I've kind of become an expert of of tour guide at the place. I always take, you know, big groups there. But I I was one day fascinated to to learn when I read the kiosk coming in um, about scientists that they explored this cave and discovered several species of spiders, crickets, and beetles and stuff like that, that that were specific to that cave. Now, some of these bugs were blind, and some of them were albino. And, and these traits are cool because these qu- critters had actually adapted to the cave environment. It made me start to think, why would a bug lack pigment in its skin or be blind just because it's in this cave? So I thought about that quite a bit, and, and, and I kind of made some of my own theories about how bugs evolved to look like this. And I thought... And as I thought out loud and I was spelunking with my friends, I I, I kind of uh, try, tried to, uh, I, I kind of thought out loud to, uh, as I expressed to my fellow spelunkers. And I, I sensed they, that they weren't as fascinated at my thoughts as I was, but, but we were in a cave and they couldn't walk away from it. So here was my theory that I had formulated of why these bugs were blind. So so if I were a cricket that had a mutation where I was born blind and I was born at the mouth of the Bloomington Cave, I'd probably enjoy the cool of the cave and have uh, not much of a preference for being in the light. And, and maybe as, as a, a cricket, I, I'd be lucky to find a, a wife um, in the place where I had migrated to. Um, and this wife wasn't necessarily blind, but... And we had a bunch of cricket babies, some of which had, you know, the blind mutation that I had and and some of them not. So I'd imagine 
and just note that I, I this is the theory that I made up years ago that I, I'd imagine the unblind um, crickets they they might migrate back into the sunlight while the blind ones um, would maybe go further into the cave and continue to pass on um, the tra- have their own babies and and pass on the trait of blindness. Now now keep this keep this in mind. This is my amateur hypothesis about buggy evolution. But to my limited knowledge of uh, of survival of the fittest, as it's called, um, I feel like the fit trait in the cave was blindness. Now I, I I could be way off on this due to my lack of you know biology and evolution training. But get this, Darwin made the same observation when he wrote The Origin of Species. Yeah, I'm that cool. So he noticed that that moles um, had lost their use of vision over time because um, they didn't use their eyes. It was uh, because of natural selection. Um, and so, and, and maybe, maybe you know, Darwin kind of thought like, oh, these moles, you know, um, the ones that, that were born with big eyes, they they maybe they got sand in their eyes when they're burrowing and and uh, they didn't last as long and so the ones that had the smaller eyes and eventually hardly any eyes at all the the blind ones they were the fittest so see yeah i'm i pretty much said the same thing <laughs> the only thing is i i already knew what evolution was but then then i also asked the question why are some of these bugs albino so, so this is one of the scenarios I kind of envisioned. Let, let's say it was albino spiders. So, so I thought that maybe the albino mutation didn't get passed on to other spiders, um, didn't get passed on to other generations of spiders in the daylight because, you know, maybe the white ones weren't very attractive to to mate with. Yeah, just man, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to hang out with the funny looking one. But in the dark. Maybe there's a different story. And like I said, this is still my hypothesis that hasn't been tested or proven. So maybe the white guys could only get the girls that were in the darker parts of the caves. Um, you know, the ones that really couldn't see them. Um, and since there's less of a preference to look normal in the dark, these albinos were pretty fly for a white guy. <laughs> Hope. Hope you like that. Um, I just had to throw that in. Um, I I liked it. Anyway, I, I'm a little less confident in that oversimplified theory than I was about the first one I made. But I, I guess I bring all this up because it was just intriguing to me that, that this cave had at least four species of cave critters that were found nowhere else in the entire world. Just in this cave, right in my backyard. And, and, and since caves are, are super isolated ecosystems, um, this for me was was pretty intriguing and kind of a, a tangible evidence of of evolution. But if, on the other hand, the, these were these critters were hand placed um, in in this particular cave by by deity um, during the the, the so called uh, creation, that's cool too, I guess. But let's move away from my amateur approach to evolution, and let's talk to the expert, Dr. Steve Peck. So he was first a, a student at BYU, and now he's a professor there. Um, he said that uh, the attitude is definitely of, of science versus religion has definitely changed and, and had its own evolution in the school just, just over that time. 
So it used to be much worse. Um, here's his experience as an undergrad. I went to BYU for my undergraduate, and it's, there's a very different climate. When I was there, the religion department and the biology department were essentially at war. Uh, literally. Uh, I was told by my uh, Pearl of Great Price teacher that I was going to go to hell for believing in evolution. The thing was, though, he didn't mean a nice Mormon hell. He was talking about a good Baptist burn in the fires kind of hell. He, he, was, he was much more interested in, uh, in seeing me suffer for that. So. But here's his experience now as a professor. But it's interesting there now, it's a much different feeling. In fact, the uh, Dean of Religious Education teaches a, a master's course for chaplains <coughs> and uh, uh, institute teachers. And he invited me to come and give a three-hour lecture on evolution. And I brought the skulls, I laid out the skulls, you know, the hominid skulls, and we, I had a great... Uh, talk and I, I told him right up front. I said, you know, I don't, I don't really have time to give you all the evidence, and I'm not going to try to convince you this is right. But I hope I'll convince you to leave it alone. That if you don't believe it, that you won't. And and but by the end, I I'd made several converts. I took them down the river and baptized them into the river. <laughs> it was exciting. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, but but it was, it was good. And I just this last semester spoke to the entire religion faculty about evolution. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I did the same thing. I brought out the skulls, and we had a very, very positive uh, discussion about things. And, I, and so I think the spirit of the, uh, of the thing... And I, the interesting thing was me. I'm not sure everybody was on board with evolution in the religion department. I don't know that. But I do know that they didn't feel comfortable challenging me in the way they would have in the, in the old days. That, that there was a much friendlier spirit, a spirit of curiosity, a desire to understand evolution, its place in scientific and religious history, and it was a great experience. So why is there a compelling argument to depart from the traditional Christian mindset of a 6,000-year-old Earth, or, or the other one of, a, of no death before the fall of Adam and Eve, in favor of evolution. Why is the evolution argument so intriguing? Here's what Steve Peck has to say. Now, we have really good record of what's happened on Earth for millions of years. We, we see the fossils and things. I always, I always joke with my students that, that spirits have fossilized so poorly that we don't really know what's happening there. But I know there were humans on the Earth for much, much for... I mean... I, uh, some of the island populations arrived there 50,000 years ago. Uh, we have art from, from, from 35,000 years ago. We have Neanderthals burying their dead and covering them with ochre, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. They were alive. They lived. They, they I assume, had hopes and dreams like we did. And I don't have a really good account of, of what, the, what kind of fall happened. We know there was death long, long before Adam and Eve. I've got trilobites on my desk that I don't think are alive, and they look dead, and I'm pretty sure they are. So here's the big question, Steve. How do you reconcile evolution 
and Christianity. There's one guy on the internet that always accuses me of, of obfuscating because I'm a BYU professor, but I really don't know. You don't know? Well, well, and, and to be fair, Steve did elaborate on, on several of his speculations on how these two mentalities could uh, work together in harmony. But, but he made it clear that these speculations aren't the important part. It was how you approach these logical gaps that he felt was most important. There isn't a good, there isn't a good match yet, but one thing I've, I've decided a while ago that I think one thing I, that this is, a, this is a personal trait that I think was harmful, that the church installed in me, and this made me an obnoxious missionary, but it installed in me a sort of sense of certainty that I had, I had literally got it all figured out. And I think within the church, we still are fairly uncomfortable with uncertainty. And if there's not an answer like that, you know, how do Adam and Eve fit in? We suddenly think to ourselves, then there must be a problem. Whereas in science, you know, unsolved mysteries are the name of the game. Those are where you, you, you get your fodder. And this is where he gets into the meaning of the book he wrote. It's called Science, the Key to Theology. So why is science the key to theology? Well, there's something we can learn in religion by applying the scientific method of, you know, asking questions, creating hypotheses, and trying to find solutions. Here's what Steve had to say about this. Because I think those kinds of questions actually shouldn't be ignored or buried, or I hate the analogy most of all of putting it on a shelf because I don't have an answer. I think they should be probed and I think they should be challenged, and we should go to work on them like we would in science on an unsolved problem. We, we, we line up the evidence that we have, and we notice where there are gaps, and we say, can we find out things here? And in here, no, but we can do an end run this way, and we can start to, to construct sensible um, hypotheses about how it might have worked. And not that they may all be testable, but I really, really believe that we shouldn't be afraid of uncertainty and that not having an answer is, is a good thing and, and not, not, not a problem. Not having an answer is a good thing. But some scientists say that all the gaps in, in religious understanding, those are evidence that there's no God. But it turns out science has its own gaps and plenty of them. And as Steve Peck says, th- those gaps are the name of the game. There are plenty of atheists in science, and it kind of seems like most of these are in the biology field. That's just how it seems to me. Um, I had a friend uh, tell me that uh, his college biology textbook clearly said that, quote, we can clearly conclude that there is no God. Um, And and Steve heard this many times from from well-respected scientists, namely Richard Dawkins, and I, I hear this. I heard this from uh, Richard Dawkins. In fact, he said, "He said um, uh, science has proven there is no God." And I thought, I haven't seen the experiment. <laughs> Send me the paper where this was proven, because you know that's how science works. Has it been replicated? Yeah, has it been replicated? <laughs> did they did they did they do it in L.A. and in Chicago? <laughs> yeah. He's got a point. Science is hollow without actual evidence. Now, now speaking of what we read in textbooks, um, one of my favorite textbooks in all my engineering schooling was my Physics for Engineers textbook. 
So the author was Randall D. Knight, um, and and I think the author, he, he was probably not an atheist, just because it seemed like he had an open mind about religion um, in the book's intro. And I'm probably one of the few students in the whole world that actually read this intro. And and while most of this intro was on, you know, how to use this new edition of the textbook, um, there was an ex- excerpt that uh, I thought was super compelling. Here it is. Quote, Physics is not better than art or biology or poetry or religion, which are also ways to think about nature. It's simply different. Physics is a human endeavor. Close quote. Since it is a human endeavor, science is only as good as what we've observed so far. And it's only as good as the tools we have to observe whatever we're observing. And I think physics has had its moments where it's just been dead wrong. I mean, here's an example. Uh, Isaac Newton, which is he's pretty much the father of physics, his discoveries, um, they've been so huge to science that uh, that they've been declared as laws. I mean, Newton's first, second, and third law. Those, those are a big deal, and we still use them. Um, scientists and engineers use them every day. But, but Newton's uh, equations of motions were wrong. But, but no one realized it until Albert Einstein came along. Newton probably didn't fathom that his equations were just fine in a normal context, but when, you, when objects start approaching the speed of light, they totally fall apart. And Einstein figured this thing out. So, so the speed of light is the factor of C that Einstein's so famous for. You know, the E equals mc squared. That's C. That's, that C means the speed of light. Einstein theorized, and he validated, that as objects approach the speed of light, time is distorted. Literally. Now, now you may think that this is not a big deal, but it's probably affecting you right now. All the GPS satellites orbiting the Earth, the ones helping you navigate on your phone, they take into account Einstein's theories, because these satellites are going at such fast speeds that the time literally is distorted when we compare our the satellite's clock and the clocks we have down on Earth. So, it, it, so if these satellites didn't take those um, speed of light, those Einstein adjustments into account, then your coordinates on your GPS would be way off. Isn't that crazy? Thank you, Einstein. But the reason I say this is because uh, f- physicists know what it's like to be wrong. Poor old Isaac Newton. But I think you'd be just fine with it. Now, something they thought would be an unchangeable law in the 1600s was totally debunked by some Einstein in the 1900s. And and biology experienced the same thing, probably more frequently, um, because there's so many new discoveries, so many things are are, are uh, discounted. And even um, um, Steve Peck was saying in, the, in in the Faith Again meeting that like a lot of these th- things that Darwin discovered, um, where he had uncertainties or where he made some conclusions, um, they have been refined by modern um, uh, modern uh, evolution endeavors. And so even Darwin was wrong about a few things, but those things have been refined. And uh, the evolution, and, and those have been refined in the favor of evolution being a stronger theory. So, so, so biology experiences changes all the time. 
Why? Because like my physics textbook said, it's a human endeavor. So here's Steve again. And um, so I think we need to be, be humble. You know, both as scientists, having a causal explanation doesn't mean that we've explained everything. We need to be humble. I know that we learn that in the Bible, but we also learn it from level-headed scientists. Here's another BYU professor, Brigham Daniels. And he was at the March for Science, the, the rally that I went to. And uh, here he is. All of us should approach questions of religion and science with some humility. There's so much we don't know. There's no shame in this. There's no shame in this. It's the beginning of wonder. It is the seeds of progress. I would say, as a person of faith, science hasn't shaken my faith. It has helped shape my faith. There are so many things we don't know. So if science can answer so many questions about the nature of this earth, can it give us insight into spiritual things? To explain this, Steve Peck points to something that Frank Jackson crafted. He called it the problem of Mary. He says, imagine Mary, the, a future neurologist. She lives in the future. And she's studied everything there is to know scientifically about the propagation of the color red. So she knows everything. We're going to stipulate there's nothing she doesn't know about seeing the color red. She knows that she knows it from the time it goes in the retina to how it propagates down the, the optic nerve, how it spreads through the cortex, what happens to that information, where it's processed, where it's sent in the end. She's got the whole picture, okay, just by stipulating. There is not a bit of science that Mary doesn't understand about seeing the color red. And then he, he adds this little twist. He says, but here's the thing. Mary is colorblind, and she's never seen the color red. And he says, but then they fix it. And she walks in, and she, for the first time in her life, sees the color red. And the question is, does she learn something she didn't know before? And it's hard to argue that she doesn't. It's very unlikely that she'd say, oh, just as I thought it would look. <laughs> you know? ah, yes, ah, yeah, okay, I expected that. No, there'd be an element of surprise and wonder. You can imagine her seeing red for the first time saying, I thought I knew everything about this, but clearly the experience was unavailable to science. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't get to it from science. There, there, there are these things that even science can't get to about how spirit, matter, uh, consciousness, all, all these kinds of things are, are mysterious. And we, 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 sometimes scientists just write that off like it'll be explained someday. And it may be. And if it is, I'll, I'll be grateful. But I kind of don't see it. So, Science is only good if you're able to measure something. Like in engineering, if you want to know the, the speed or the weight or if, if you want to sense if, if electricity flows through something, you have to have some type of sensor. We don't have a sensor for spiritual things. I mean, we could look at brain scans and stuff, but that still doesn't uh, allow us to see what some, a person is actually experiencing. So we don't have a sensor for spiritual things, and that's how science 
can't really touch religion at at this point anyway. So so what makes Steve a believer? See, I can only go from my experience seeing the color red. And I've had experiences with God and got to know God that way. And I think that's actually probably the only way. I don't expect to find find God in uh, the explanation of certain things that I can't get my hands on. Is there a can, fossil of him somewhere? We haven't, we haven't found a fossil <laughs> yet. No spirituality in fossils. But what we but what we can do is we can go to the scriptures and we can have an experience of God, and we can share those kinds of experiences that that um, that teaches us things that aren't aren't necessarily scientific. And then he gives a personal story about whales. This is this is uh, Eugene England's story. At BYU, he was organizing Food for Poland. And I had actually set aside some money to save the wells. This is back when that wasn't a cliche. We were were actually concerned with saving the wells. And and I was really poor, and all I had was this money that I'd set aside for save the wells. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, people are more important, and I should give it to the people. But I was just haunted by this question about can I give this money to save the wells when there's people suffering and I I was really worried about it and I prayed about it for a long time one time I thought well I'm going to give the money to save the people of Poland and I'm going to pray about it one more time and I don't know what it was but I had an experience that I learned and I don't say this is an experience that you can relate with but I learned for myself that God knew the wells and he loved them and he knew their names. And that was one thing that really struck me, that God knew them as individuals. And this, this you know, wasn't shown like in a vision. It was a deeply personal experience with God about his concern for the creatures of the earth. And it's been a, had a, proud, a profound effect on, on me and my love of ecology and things. When I know for myself, and this is, I'm not going to say you have to believe this as doctrine but I know for myself that God knows the whales and he cared about them and I gave the money to the whales <laughs> so but but those that's an, that's an example and I've had others where where I recognize totally that this could be just my brain playing tricks on me I recognize that it didn't feel that way it was like seeing a color. It was like a phenomenal experience that I had. That, 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 and that's why I believe. And here's his closing thoughts on evolution. This is, I'm, I'm really passionate about evolution. I love evolution, everything about it. I absolutely wish it wasn't held in such suspicion. And I hope, I've, if, you haven't, if I haven't converted you, I hope I've at least got you convinced that this is possible. So... Can evolution and Christianity coexist? Well, whether you're spelunking or deciding whether to save the wells, it all starts with a question. Thanks for listening. We'd like to give a shout-out for those who uh, shared our Facebook posts, namely Kendall Palmer, Stetler Epley, Tina Champati, uh, Sarah Kate Melville, and Margaret Melville. 
To get a shout-out on the show, share a post you like. And we're now on Twitter, and last week we just reached 100 followers. Now, we're new at this, but we'd like more followers. Follow our page um, by going to the link that I will post in the show notes. Our theme music is provided by Dee Dee Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Un-Uninformed. Thanks, everybody.